Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Studios, it's the Press Box Summer Edition. I hate this place. I do. Ed Graney. I'm telling you, I hate it. Tyler Bischoff. I'm in a hostile environment. I am completely unprepared. I'm surrounded by people who probably want to kick my ass. It's like being back in high school. On ESPN Las Vegas. What's up? It's a Monday. ESPN 1100.9 FM. It's Ed, Tyler, and Jared off another Raiders win. Man. They are dominant. They cannot be stopped in the preseason. The the Ravens. Stidham. They're going 4-0 in the preseason. Yeah. Take the Ravens can't even go four and zero. They can only go three. Yeah, they can't. They don't have four games this year. They only ignore go that twenty-one game winning streak they have, or whatever it is. Which, by the way, is that the the least exciting accomplishment a team has ever had? Yeah, especially when the players come out and say this matters to us. It's like, <laughs> what? Why does that matter to you? Nobody cares about that. Look at who plays in these preseason games. We're gonna get to that with the Raiders. You turned on the second half. I was there for the second half. I was like looking at the roster. Who's that guy? Yeah, they got some dude named Leatherwood out there. <laughs> well, get him too. Eventually, they're just going to have guys with no numbers out there yeah, playing exactly. in the second half. Like, who's that? Yeah. They didn't even give him a number? All right, sounds fun. The first bite. What was the biggest storyline from the second preseason game? Text well, your answer to 69187 with ESPN before your response. Had to be the 42 guys who were on the offensive line last night. Mixing and matching. Um, talk about uh, losing some track of some guys last night. Uh, there were so many in and out that uh, I lost track at some point of who was in there. So I think it was the offensive line and all these guys trying different positions and them them desperately trying to find someone that something that works back up there. Thayer Munford started <laughs> at right tackle in this game. The Raiders' offensive line in the preseason. Colton Miller's the starting left tackle. Colton Miller is good enough that he does not play or has not played in the preseason games along with Derek Carr, Devontae Adams, Hunter Renfro, right? He's considered in that category. Everybody else is is not. Nobody else on that offensive line is in that category. Should they be? So we've seen uh, everybody else playing in those preseason games. We've seen Andre James at center, even though Andre James is probably locked in as the starting center. We've seen Andre James playing in these preseason games, but we've seen a lot of different guys at tackle with Miller out. We saw in game one, Brandon Parker play left tackle and he did not perform well. He's now hurt. We saw Alex Leatherwood play right tackle in game one. Then in game two, we saw Jermaine Elmanor play left tackle and Thayer Munford play right tackle to start that game. Alex Leatherwood didn't play until the second half of this game. So to me, the, the biggest storyline is what's been the biggest storyline all offseason. When are they going to add an offensive yeah. lineman to yeah. this team? When are they going to do that? They ha- they're they trying got the out cap space. Thayer Munford. Yeah. When are they going to add Thayer an offensive had a good lineman? week of practice. <laughs> That's what they're saying. They, you know, those who have a good week of practice uh, are the ones who get the first opportunity to play, and Thayer Munford must have had a good week of practice. Alex Leatherwood's interesting that he didn't get into the second half. That was yeah. a big question mark. We kept, 
I actually at some point in the first half thought, oh, they're not playing him this week. You thought and, you thought it was it was a good thing for Alex. Yeah, Leatherwood. I thought it was a good thing for Alex Leatherwood because he was just on the sideline in the meetings when the <laughs> offensive line came over. He didn't even have a helmet on. Oh, I'm like, oh, wow. he's Colton Miller this week. He's not going to play. And then all of a sudden, in the second half, he's in there. So you had Jarrett Stidham, who acting as sort of the first team quarterback since Carr's not playing, and Stidham played the entire first half. And I think that's sort of the the basis on which you look at the offense and who played in that first half. They kind of treated that first half as, okay, the best at each position are going to go. And Leatherwood didn't get a single look. And like you said, they were mixing and matching the offensive line the whole game throughout the game. And Leatherwood doesn't get a single snap with the backup quarterback and Jarrett Stidham. He didn't get one until Mullins and Garbers came right. in, in the second half. So that is a pretty bad sign for Alex Leatherwood. Now, is it just that Thayer Munford had a good week of practice and they wanted to give him an entire half? To see what he has, maybe. I mean, it could be the way they're the way they're mixing and matching these guys. Maybe it's that simple. And Josh McDaniel said afterward, there's still a, there's a huge competition across the line. Said he had said they had depth at tackle. Well, they do have I mean, depth. It's just have, not good. Well, they have depth. I don't know if it's quality. <laughs> you can if you have numbers, that's depth. It depends yeah. on if it's quality. Yeah. So here's here's the the issue for the Raiders. They are. Halfway through in terms of games, the preseason here. They have now trotted out Alex Leatherwood and seventh round pick Thayer Munford as their potential right tackles. If we're assuming Brandon Parker's well, hurt. And and, Brandon Parker until he got hurt. Right. He conceivably could come back for week one, I guess, and be the starting right tackle. But even then, throw him in this conversation too. Do we really believe a guy, a seventh round rookie is going to be a competent starting right tackle in week one of the NFL? I mean, it's hard to say. I wouldn't know on the basis of what you just said. I'd right. say no. If, if he is, Good terrific for him. job by the Good Raiders. They found the a starter in week yeah. one or in round seven for yeah. week one. Like, But that seems very, very unlikely. The whole reason for optimism around Alex Leatherwood is that, well, a lot of offensive linemen – struggle in their first year. Yeah, they get better in the second year. And Absolutely. Pretty much first more than year. pretty much more than any other position in the NFL. You go from struggling right. to average and then maybe you become good. Colton Miller sc- struggled in this right. first year. But if we believe that logic, there's no way Thayer Munford can be good in year 1. Right. There's no way a 7th round tackle can be good enough to start in week 1. And if we're sitting here on August 15th, roughly a month before the season starts, and that's a legitimate possibility for the Raiders, which to me, them playing him the entire first half at right tackle last night suggests that they think it's a real possibility that Thayer Munford could start at right tackle in week one. Either you are hitting on an absolute diamond in the rough, or that's simply not good enough. That is simply not good enough. If you're the Raiders and a team that expects to go to the playoffs, to have Thayer Munford yeah. as a possibility to start at right tackle. No, you're right. I mean, it doesn't, it would be a huge, huge upset. For a seventh rounder, I don't care if he played at Ohio State or not. You know, he played at a great school, played a lot of good, played against great players, not only in, in games but in practice. But a seventh rounder to be your starting right tackle, probably not the most, uh, you know, uh, thing that you're looking forward to. And and I still don't, I still can't make out what they think of Leatherwood. That he didn't play at all in the first half was that scripted? That he wasn't going to? It must have been scripted that he was only yeah. going to play in the second half. I think. There's uh, there's two things to Leatherwood. I think number one, he hasn't impressed enough to where like if Alex Leatherwood impressed enough, he'd be the starting. Well, right he'd tackle. be the start. He'd be the starter. And I think there's a level of okay, he hasn't impressed enough, but 
he was a first round pick. It would cost them cap space to cut him, right? If they got rid of him, it would, they'd be a bunch of dead money on their cap for this year and next season. So they basically have to keep him around and they'd love for him to be the starter, but he's just simply not good enough. He's just simply not earning that spot, but they can't really cut him. So He's going to be on the roster. He's going to be, He maybe he ends up starting, but I think what we've seen so far, when you start Thayer Munford over him in a preseason game, you're basically saying he hasn't been well, good enough to be the starter. And before he got hurt, it wasn't like Brandon Parker in the in the, in the the game that he played set it on fire. Yeah. He got beat the first, he got beat by a rookie. He's bad. Two or three times, yeah. got beat on the first play of the game. Yeah, so it's, you look at whatever, all their options for starting right tackle are not very good. It's it's not a good situation for them. And we've talked about it the entire offseason. We continue to talk about it until they do something. When, they've got to bring somebody in. Yeah. When are they going to bring somebody in? We're less than a month away from the season starting. When are they going to bring in somebody else in this offensive line? Because they need to. I mean, again, we're talking about Thayer Munford, a guy they took in the seventh round. Like, that's a potential starting right tackle for the Raiders in week one. A team that thinks they're going to the Super Bowl is considering starting their seventh round pick at right tackle. Like that's kind of ridiculous. Like that's kind of absurd to think that Thayer Munford is a legitimate option to start at right tackle. So that that's the biggest storyline. And until we see something different, that's going to be the potential biggest flaw of this team and this front office and coaching staff that they have not done anything to actually address the offensive line because Good luck, Thayer Munford, if he's starting in week one of the season. And by the way, against the, the Chargers, the other issue here for the Raiders on their offensive line is like, what happens if Colton Miller misses a game? Like, what oh. happens if Colton, Colton Miller misses multiple car games? outs? Did him in. Like, what happens if Colton Miller the game, has an injury? Like, it, offensive line, yeah, sometimes guys will make it through the whole season, but it's a pretty injury heavy position. Guys get hurt quite a bit on the offensive line. And we're talking about how do they fill right tackle at the moment? What if, if ha- what has if Colton Miller's left hurt, tackle? Are they running out Brandon Parker and Thayer Munford as their two starting tackles? Like, good God! You're right, Jared Sidham should play that yes. game. Car, you get out, you're on the silence, <laughs> but it's a regular season game. That's okay. Colton Miller's hurt. <laughs> like they are, they've got one good tackle, and if something happens to Colton Miller, they have no good tackles going into a season, which seems incredible to think like it seems ridiculous to say out loud now i do need to ask you a question about the field your your sport what okay your so, <laughs> so allegiance stadium hosted three soccer, soccer games, games three weeks ago and they're blaming soccer for why the field yeah. looked awful well and they roll it out and roll it in and there's, right. been, there's been some rain so I'm not sure. They, yeah, too, they overwatered. We got too yeah, much exactly. water in Las too much Vegas. Water, too much rain. So the field looked terrible. Like we're like this was like oh it's the Steelers because Pitt played on Saturday in a tornado and now the Steelers are playing the next day. So the field looks ter- like that's what they were playing on. And I'm I'm so blown away that a they would blame three soccer games that happened almost a month ago. Like, you can't get it fixed in three weeks. And also, this field can't handle three soccer games. We're not talking about, like, oh, somebody, we just had 17 straight days of games. 
They it can't handle three soccer games. That's what you're telling me. It's going to be okay for saying. the regular season. They're going to have the new new stuff down. Did Don't they, worry. They're going to fire paint, the they're, grounds crew. They're well, going to paint it. They're going <laughs> to what if they what if they paint it green? Green spray green paint. Green spray paint. Are they going to fire the grounds crew? You're telling me the field looked as bad as an outdoor field in the Midwest for a stadium that can roll it in and out. Like if there's too much rain, roll it inside. If you need some rain, roll it outside. Like. You're kidding me, right? Like that's that's pathetic. You're just mad because they're blaming your sport. No, it's a joke. Well, mad. that how are they blaming <laughs> soccer? It happened three weeks ago. This the field looked like Cashman Field out in when the lights. Listen, play. when it counts, they're going to be. It's going to look great for what a week, and then they're going to be like, oh, we played a game no, on it. Now the grass they're, sucks. They're going to be on top of things. I heard. I actually heard after the game. Don't worry, they'll be on top of things. I'm like, all right, but why aren't they on top of things now? <laughs> that's the preseason. Okay, and if somebody gets hurt running out there, Bayer Munford's going to tear his ACL trying to take the field. Then who's starting it right tackle? Then who's starting it right tackle? Leatherwood, get your helmet on. Like, I just, I couldn't believe the field looked that bad. And then they're like, well, we hosted these soccer games a month ago. I just, I cannot buy that excuse as to why that's why the field looked bad. They didn't do anything to it after soccer, obviously. Yeah, they didn't even look at it. They just let it sit outside, apparently. They just rolled it out. I... That was incredible to me that it would look that bad. How bad it looked on TV? Really oh, bad? Awful. Not good. Oh, awful. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. My buddy uh, in San Diego, like within two minutes, texted, "What the hell's wrong with the field?" Yeah. <laughs> and I wrote back, "They played soccer." It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> they played soccer games. It doesn't on it. make any sense. Why is soccer such this? It's not a difficult sport on the grass. Not any more difficult. No, than they're football. running. Yeah, they're running around for like forty-five yeah, minutes. Exactly. A lot not of running. A lot of running around. Football's the same, same amount of players on the field. I just, are we going to get to week four? And they're gonna be like, oh, we played too many games on the grass. We just couldn't figure this out. Well, they won't have to worry about UNLV because UNLV's got that turf. That's that right. Yeah, that care. turf. That's going to be real good. I don't know. <laughs> I don't understand how the grass can be so bad. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into some Golden Knights and if they should do anything to repra- uh, replace Robin Leonard. Second down, goal to go for the Chiefs at the five. McKinnon in there now. They fake to him. They run a tight end. Screen right side. Touchdown. Kansas City. The bulldozer on a right side tight end screen. He has yet to have a regular season touchdown in his career of eight years. But now he has a preseason touchdown and a postseason touchdown. All of the sun, none of the fun on the Press Box Summer Edition. Ed, you missed all the fun last week with Robin Leonard. He yeah, is, you literally left, and I had to carry that segment. It was terrible. He is out for oh, the season. News broke. It did during our show, which is good. Normally, it's you know after the 10-01. show. Normally, it's very vague, but news actually broke about Robin Leonard during our show. Uh, done for the season, having hip surgery. No exact timeline from the Golden Knights on when he'll be back. Ed, other uh, than no exact season. comment from the Golden yeah. Knights on anything. Hip is a uh, lower body. Uh, lower body, yeah, lower body injury. So. Do you believe the Golden Knights should make a move for a goalie before the season starts? Or do you believe they should sort of let Logan Thompson try to carry this team? Well, given most of the guys you have down here is available, I would let Logan Thompson try and carry this team because most of these guys are really old and either hurt or missing the year. Uh, I'd assume the only one, uh, Jake Odinger of Dallas, restricted free agent, might be an offer, but he'd take too much to sign. So I would would start Logan Thompson and... I don't know if I'd wait till the trade deadline because what if they're 
you know, seven and 14 or something <laughs> like that. And then you might want to make a move, but you, you'll name these guys off. I just, uh, I mean, who's available? So the athletic listed off some potential goalies. Braden Holtby is a free agent, but he is expected to miss the season, according to so Pierre not LeBron, him. due to an injury. Corey Schneider is a free agent. He is 36 years old. He only played in 14 games over the last two seasons, and he has had five straight seasons with a negative goal saved above average. So not him. I can't imagine you sign Corey Schneider and expect him to start. The two guys that they, or one guy that they could trade for, is Simeon Verlamov, who's probably gotten the most attention so far as a potential trade target for the Golden Knights. He is 34. He's been in the NHL for 14 years. His last three years as an Islander, 918 save percentage and 32 goals saved above average. Now, he had one season where he was at plus 22. So one season's doing a lot of work there, but he's still been good for three straight seasons. He is under contract for one more season. At $5 million, which is exactly how much Robin Leonard is uh, getting paid. And with him going on long-term IR, presumably, that they could make that fit relatively easy. Or, and this is the most fun of the options, sending an offer sheet out to Jake Ettinger and Dallas. Uh, he's only 23, uh, 913 save percentage in two seasons. The problem with an offer sheet is that, A, the player has to agree to it which means you normally have to overpay to offer sheet somebody and the golden Knights would lose draft picks. Depending on how much money they would offer him, they would lose draft picks. If they offered him something like $6 million, the golden Knights would lose a first round pick plus more just to get a goalie. And at the end of the day, Dallas could match. And then you don't have a goalie. If you offer sheet him and then D Dallas has the right to match because he's a restricted free agent, then oh. you don't have the goalie anyway. I don't know if the head coach is in Dallas is going to let him go to the golden Knights. Pete DeBoer. So those were the options the Athletic laid out. If I was running the Golden Knights, I am putting my faith in Logan Thompson, and I'm not spending any money, any of this extra space, until I have to. Right. I am waiting until the trade deadline to use whatever extra cap space I currently have. That would be my plan if I were the Golden Knights. Even if he stinks early. And so that's the thing. If Logan Thompson is bad early in the season, I guess it depends on how bad he is. But there's a level to this where if I'm the front office, and now I know the owner probably might not agree with this, but if it were up to me and Logan Thompson is bad, I'm no longer trying to win this season. I would become a seller, and I would be trying to acquire assets for the future. Jared, let's get Bill, Bill Foley on the uh, phone. Uh, he'll, he'll join us here at 727. Because if this team is bad, right, in the first 20 games of the season, it's probably not all going to be Logan Thompson's fault. If they're right, bad, they're probably the going to be not scoring. Right. If they're bad in the first 20 games, there's probably going to be Logan Thompson might be an issue, but there's probably going to be other issues to this team that one simple trade is not going to fix. And if this team is bad in the first 20 games, this team is probably not winning the Stanley Cup. They're probably not going on a ridiculous St. Louis Blues run like they did four years ago and winning the Stanley Cup. So to me, and again, I know the owner probably wouldn't let this happen, but the best case scenario for the, not best case, but if they're bad, the right thing to do would be to become sellers. In hindsight, they should have done that at the trade deadline last year. In hindsight, that's a team that didn't make the postseason, and they were not sellers to the trade deadline. They absolutely should have done that at the trade deadline last season. Riley Smith should have been traded at the trade deadline 
last season. The Golden Knights could have actually traded from a position of leverage, which they haven't done in like three years, but they went for it last year and they got nothing in return. They lost players for nothing. They ended up trading away Max Pacioretty for nothing. Like in hindsight, they should have been Future sellers considerations. At the and if this team is bad to start the year, they should absolutely well, be sellers again. You've mentioned it three or four times, though. The owner won't allow that to happen. But we know if this team is bad in the first 20 games, they're somehow trying to make a trade right. for some guy making some, $8 million. Yes. And we're looking around saying, how the hell are you going to do? Well, we're going to literally cut the rest of the roster. Right. We're going to play with seven guys. Right? But that's works for me. Would be stupid because that's what they've been doing for years, and that's why they they have no future assets. Like they have their picks, no. but they have like who's a good young player within the the system, right? Is there anybody you can really Logan look at Thompson. and say, hey, that guy could be good this year as like a rookie or something, right? No, I mean they've got some guys that might be good in the future, but it's not like you're looking at a team. It's like okay, well they got some 21 year old who could be killing it in the NHL if he gets a chance. It, it doesn't exist for well, this team. Well, that's what we've been talking about, the bottom six depth. Yeah. I mean, who, who's who's fitting in there? And they don't have guys right now who are ready to fit in there and come up as a rookie and make a difference. They signed Jake Lashizen and Paul Cotter to extensions. Both got three-year deals at the NHL minimum. Uh, Cotter has played seven career NHL games. He did score twice in those. Uh, Jake Lashizen has 41 career games, two goals, four assists last season in the NHL. That's going to be – I mean, they're going to need – Somebody, multiple somebodies, to have a good season while making less than a million dollars. Now that doesn't mean fifty. Doesn't mean Paul Cotter needs to score thirty goals, but it means I mean it help. But I mean Paul Cotter, could you get like, hey, he's a fourth liner and scores twelve goals? Can you get ten? Can they get that from somebody that's making seven hundred fifty thousand, eight hundred fifty thousand dollars? We already know Logan Thompson probably needs to be one of them. That's a guy making less than a million dollars. That if they're going to be a true contender. That guy's got to be like a top 10 goalie, mm-hmm. something like that. Top 12 Ooh. goalie in the NHL. Like, oh. Hey, hey, he kind of does. He can do it. I mean, maybe they can get by with average and, you know, make the playoffs. I don't with know if they can get by with average with the lack of scoring. Yeah. I, I mean, that's ultimately, we talked about it last week with the forward depth and everything is like, how much scoring are they actually going to get? It might be a case where they're sort of a slightly above average scoring team. Like they're not going to be bad because like they're I not going to be great right it's not a like great goal scores but they've got good players they've got enough good players they should be a above average offensive team but they're probably we're not talking about a top five goal scoring team we're probably talking about oh they're 11th in the league in goals which is fine but if well you're, it's fine if logan thompson's really good right but if you're 11th in the league in goals and logan thompson is you know and in, in your goalie play whoever it is is like 16th 15th best in the league you're pro- you're a playoff team, right? At the end of the day, but you're a bottom half playoff team. You're a going on the road in the first round playoff right. team. Which, hey, Logan Thompson gets hot and you win a couple series is possible, but you're not really a Stanley Cup contender at that point. So they're like, do you look at where they're getting production from? The guys aren't getting paid very much. Logan Thompson obviously is most important, but they're going to need other guys to do it. Whether it's Jake Lecision or Paul Cotter or who Brett Howden, Michael Amadio, like guys that just simply aren't making much money. They're going to need somebody, some buddies to have big seasons. They're going to need a couple. Do you know the? Do you understand guys. the names you just said? Michael Amadio and Brett Howden yes. and Jake Cotter and or Jake Cotter, and Paul. Close enough. Paul Lecision. If maybe if they combined them into one, yeah. Then they'd get 14 goals and they'd be fine. Put a trench coat on them and just skate around really tall. Yeah, that might work. So it's just like there's a ton of question marks. 
for this team. They're already where the goalie situation makes it even more so. And if things go well, they're a cup contender. If things go poorly, they'll miss the playoffs. And if things, some go poorly, some go well, they'll make the playoffs and probably lose in the first round, honestly. Like it's, it's probably the most likely outcome for the Golden Knights this year is make the playoffs, but don't actually go anywhere. All right, coming up next, the Aces clinch the one seed in the WNBA playoffs. We talk to Andy Yamashita. And here comes Brianna Stewart, ripped away by Jackie. Jackie's got it. Aces got numbers three on two to Plum for three. KP, ring it up. Boom, shaka, laka, laka, boom. 76-73, Aces come back. You're listening to the Press Box Summer Edition. The Aces knocked off the Seattle Storm in the final game of the regular season. Yesterday, they clinched the one seed in the WNBA playoffs. Joining us now from the Review Journal is Andy Yamashita. Good morning, Andy. How are you Hey, Andy. What's going on, man? It's going good. It's going good. Thanks for having me, y'all. All right. Outside of the actual team accomplishment, do you believe Asia Wilson won the MVP yesterday? I really do. That seemed like the moment to me. You talk a lot about Brianna Stewart was leading the league in scoring. That seemed like an obvious moment. Both of them are high-level defenders. I don't think either of them get talked about for the level of defense they play. But to come up with that block at the last minute of the game, essentially, steals the game on Brianna Stewart, that was tough. That was, to me, that was Asia Wilson's MVP moment. I've been said that I think she was the MVP of the season. And it was hard to come up with a better moment. I mean, Chelsea Gray turns around and turns that into a, a KP3, and, I mean, that pretty much sealed the game. That, to me, was her MVP moment, no doubt. So is this unanimous, or you think it's going to be close? I don't know if it'll be close. It won't be unanimous. I think Brianna Stewart will get her fair share of votes, as she deserves. She's been absolutely phenomenal this year. The Storm really kind of bounced back from a rough start, or I don't want to say rough, but rough by their standards. They've been good for so long. Obviously, they want to win a championship in Suburbs last season. So I think she'll get her fair share of respect, as she's due, but I do think Asia Wilson should be the MVP. Um, how come Kelsey Plum's not getting more attention for this? I feel like Kelsey Plum should be right in the same conversation as both of them. I really think the difference is, in my opinion, from watching this team all year, Kelsey thrives in this system. She absolutely does. You can see how comfortable she is, how much Becky trusts her. Asia Wilson is the system. Everything the Aces can do is because they have a generational player like Asia Wilson. She frees up Kelsey. She frees up Jackie. She frees up Chelsea. I also think that the Aces turn around in form for the last month really since the all-star break has come because Becky took the ball away from Kelsey and Jackie a bit and said, play within the system, stop hunting your own shot as much, let Chelsea run the offense and finish the plays when we need you to finish the plays. And I think that all of that combined is what really puts Asia ahead of Kelsey here. And that's not to take anything away from Kelsey. I think Kelsey has been almost unanimous first team to all WNBA player this season. She's been fantastic. She's shattering records left and right for three-point shooting, and she's getting a lot of praise for that, as she should. I just believe that if they didn't have Asia Wilson, I don't know if any of this is possible in the first place. 
Two-part question. The first part is they will win the championship if? They'll win the championship if they play defense. That's really what it comes down to, you know. These last, you couldn't have asked for a better kind of final run into the playoffs. You beat Seattle twice, once on the road. You beat Chicago at home. They did a lot and proved a lot, but it's a lot of the stuff we kind of already knew about them. They'll play defense when they want to play defense. They can hit threes. They can outshoot a lot of teams if they have to, but this team is so much better if they play defense. And the other thing I would say is they'll win if Chelsea Gray continues to play at this level. Chelsea Gray, for the last month and a half, has played out of her mind. And career high 33 against the Storm in the final game of the season, but so much of what she's been able to do, the offense flows so much better when they play through her and when she's on her game. She facilitates for everybody. She makes their whole offense better. I really think that those are the two things that if they, if Chelsea continues to play at this level and lead this offense and if they play defense the way they're capable of playing defense, those will be the two things that you can point to at the end of the playoffs and say that's why the Aces won if they're successful. So I guess you answered the second question. They won't win if they don't defend, but uh, we'll go. We'll take it a step further. What's the worst matchup? Washington, for sure. Washington's the only team that swept the Aces this season. They're a gritty defensive team who will always show up to defend, which clearly isn't necessarily what the Aces always want to do. I think that the Aces think they should be 3-0 and against Connecticut. They think they should be 3-0 and against Chicago. The Mystics are the only team this season who have really taken them to task every single time. Elena Del Don is a really tough matchup for Asia Wilson in the post, though we haven't seen them. No, we have seen the Mystics uh, since the Aces changed their starting lineup, and they lost it again. Um, so I think Washington by far is going to be their toughest matchup. But Washington has a really tough matchup with Seattle in the first round, which I don't believe is a given that they're going to win. So each team in the top five, I would say, who are the contenders, has one team they don't want to match up with. And I'd say for the Aces, it's the Mystics. How big of a talking point is it going to be if De'Erica Hamby misses the entire postseason or even just through the semifinals? Are we talking about that being the reason that they lose before the finals? I certainly think it makes things a lot harder for them. The Aces have been so top-heavy all year. You're finally starting to get something from Raquana Williams. You're getting a lot from Kia Stokes right now. But De'Erica Hamby, with her size, with her ability in transition, her rebounding – which has been kind of underrated, all really, really important factors. And I think while you might not see it in this first round against Phoenix, definitely in the second round, whether the Aces get, whoever the Aces get, you're going to see it. But especially if the Aces get a Seattle, De'Erica Hamby is their number one option to guard uh, Brianna Stewart, or has been for most of this season. I think that's, a matchup where you'd really see her absence. I think, in general, Becky Hammond has always said it'll be her defense that they miss the most. And, again, considering this is a team that doesn't always like to play defense, I think Hamby's absence will definitely get noticed the longer she's gone.
We talked about the atmosphere Josh McDaniels did at Allegiant yesterday, but 10,000-plus, I think, at the Aces. Uh, although uh, Asia Wilson would like everyone in town and, the, and, the, and <laughs> all of Las Vegas to show up for the playoffs. I don't know if that's possible to fit everyone in there. But talk about the atmosphere yesterday and how, how incredible it was for that game. It really was a fantastic atmosphere. 10,015 was the official count, a record for Aces home game. It was also a lot of Seattle fans, to be fair. Sue Bird's final game, obviously there was a little bit of a ceremony beforehand, recognizing everything that she's done for women's basketball. But at the end of the day, it was a fantastic crowd. Every single play, you could really feel that energy and feel that emotion on the big plays. They absolutely loved Wilson's block on Brianna Stewart. They loved every time Kelsey Plum hit a three. It was a pretty great atmosphere, like all things considered. Not even all things considered, just straight up a great atmosphere. Lots of fun, lots of uh, people really engaged, really enjoying what the team is doing, and it'll definitely be interesting and something to keep watching as the playoffs go on to see if they can continue to draw Maybe not necessarily 10,000, but can they draw eight, five, or 9,000 people per playoff game? I think that's definitely something worth noting. Well, he is Andy Amashta from the Review Journal covering the Las Vegas Aces. The playoffs get started uh, this week. Andy, we appreciate your time. Thank Thanks, you so Andy. Much. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate, appreciate it. it. So, yeah. Andy covering the Aces. Who's uh, the whole Raiders team's got to be there for the first playoff game on what Wednesday? Right? Well, it appears everyone's coming. If you ask Asia Wilson, yeah. the UNLV women's basketball team has already tweeted out they will be there. Oh, yeah. They get, wait, they getting free tickets for that? I don't know. Is that allowed? Well, I'm just saying, <laughs> if you're the Aces, you're not giving out free tickets, right, to the whole no. team? Like maybe like Lindy LaRock <laughs> discounted. I think there's still ten bucks. So, can you really discount ten dollar tickets? I've told you before the. I don't know, lights fan. I've told you before the pricing of if you're in the lower bowl, it's like a hundred or eighty dollars, a hundred or eighty dollars for the aces, and in the upper deck, it's ten. Yeah, <laughs> like the the only medium price is the ones behind the basket, which are seats that suck. And it doesn't matter because everyone can earn a slice. Earn a slice if you they miss twice. Yeah, you don't have to pay a hundred dollars to earn that slice. That's right. You could just get in with any ticket. Have you been to the ten the ten dollar seats? Yeah, that's where. Yeah, that's the only place I've ever sat. I have not sat. I'm not paying a hundred dollars. It's not a huge place. You've got, you right. you no, probably no. like the, see the entire game. It's not like this enormous vast oh, place. As long as you're on the sideline, there's not a bad seat in there. Right. Like I will say, behind the baskets look like they're terrible seats. But like as long as you're on the sideline, this the upper deck is not really upper. It's no, like it's not. It's not very far away from barely off the floor. So it's it's a perfectly fine place to sit for ten dollars versus a hundred bucks to sit like twelve feet closer in the lower bowl. It's yeah. So that's where I would sit. I've I've yeah haven't sat in the lower bowl for an Aces game because why would I do that? That sounds ridiculous to pay that much money when I can pay ten bucks to sit up there. So all right, coming up next. We'll jump into some college football and college basketball because guess who wants to change the NCAA tournament? I'm not sure. I think we're probably headed in a direction, like it or not, of mega conferences. How that all turns out and what's too big and what's not big enough is probably a pretty good question to try to figure out, but I'm not sure anybody has the answer to that right now, and maybe we have two or three mega conferences and then you know that's where the playoff teams come from i really i really don't know but it looks like we're headed in that direction 
Back to the Press Box Summer Edition. Guess who wants to expand the NCAA tournament? Guess who? Yeah. Well, the most influential guy in all of college athletics. The SEC Commissioner, Greg Sankey. Uh, he said over the weekend that he wants to take a fresh look at the NCAA Which means they're going to take a fresh look. Uh, Sports Illustrated's Pat Forty <laughs> wrote about it. Um, but basically, the we argument... Vanderbilt doesn't get in. The argument that Greg Sankey tried to put out there is that there are... Basically, there are good teams that get left out. Right. And his argument, strangely, was that Ole Miss won the NCAA College World Series in baseball. Last team after in. After being the last team in. And he was like, well, if that can happen in baseball, we obviously need more teams in in basketball which is a ridiculous argument. Like, it's just absurd to say out loud, well, in baseball it happened, so we should do it in basketball. The other key there is that Ole Miss made the NCAA tournament. They weren't left out. But in reality, if you actually read through the story here, you finally get to why Greg Sankey is actually saying this. I thought Texas A&M should have been in the field in basketball. People didn't agree, but the way they played at the end of the year, I firmly think they were one of the better teams in the country. I'm biased, but somebody else, Dayton, was one of the first four out. He just tries to throw Dayton in there as like, hey, it's not just us, but it is just them. It's just Texas A&M was on the bubble, missed out, and Greg Sankey is like, wait a minute. My teams can't be on the bubble and miss out. All of the SEC teams should be in, so let's expand it until there are all 14, soon to be 16 SEC teams in the NCAA tournament. I mean, you surprised at this at all? No. No. I, I am surprised that it's August 15th and he's saying it, right? Like, this is much more, um, you know, in the news in March, you know, when the NCAA tournament's happening. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, this is just simply one of his teams is on the bubble, one of his teams got left out. And I wonder if, like, somebody from Texas A&M specifically complained to him and he was like, okay, I'll I'll open my mouth and see if we can get something to to happen here. But it would be... Here's the thing. It would be absurd to me to expand the NCAA tournament so that the ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th best SEC teams can get in. Like that to me, like if that's the legitimate reasoning is so that the 10th best SEC team doesn't get left out on the bubble, that's ridiculous. That's absolutely absurd to do that. Okay, and also, also if this would happen... As 40 writes, would this take away the automatic bids from the smaller conferences? Because so, that's what they're scared to death of. Uh, they all, the smaller conferences, right. the bigger conferences don't care. Greg Sankey did say he didn't want to eliminate the small guys, the auto bid conferences, the conferences that get one yeah. spot to their conference champion. Even though he says that out loud, I still don't believe him, right? Like, this is the conference that is fighting against automatic spots in the college football playoff. Mm-hmm. This is the conference that if the college football playoff expands to eight or 12, they're going to try to do it without adding auto bids to conference champions because they want as many SEC teams in as possible. If the NCAA tournament did not have auto bids, right? If the MEAC didn't get their champion in, there would be more spots for the SEC. There would right. be more spot. There, the whole the whole tournament would be there'd be sixty eight power teams. schools. There'd be sixty power conference. There'd be schools. sixty power schools. Yeah, and then like oh, the Mountain West Gonzaga, got in. a couple Mountain West teams, and like I don't know some Conference USA right. team or an American Athletic Conference team. Like there'd be eight non power conference teams that would make it, and that's what would happen here. So 
even though he says he doesn't want to eliminate the one, the auto bids to everybody, he absolutely wants to eliminate the auto bids because that would immediately, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have to expand the tournament. That would immediately get all of the SEC yes. teams in. Like, that's just what it would be. So the, the problem though is like, when Greg say, like, if you took the NCAA tournament and you simply argued, like, the best, get the best possible teams in, right? You could make a legitimate argument to eliminate the auto bid conferences because they're, those are clearly not the best teams. Teams that get in from a one bid conference are, you know, ranked 189th or something like that. They're clearly not the best teams, but. That's what makes it fun. Right. That's why we love it is because how the hell did St. Peter's get in the NCAA tournament? Well, they won some conference. Loyola Chicago. Yeah. And then they go on a fun run and it's a single elimination tournament. So it's entirely plausible that they can pull off an upset of Kentucky and then a couple more on the way. Like that's why we love it. That That's why the NCAA tournament's so amazing. And it would take like, it wouldn't happen right away. It would take some time. But I honestly think if you eliminated the one bid conferences, the NCAA tournament would stop being as popular as it is, right? If it was just, hey, the 68 yeah. best teams in college basketball, I honestly think it would lose a lot of its popularity because you wouldn't have St. Peter's anymore. You would have, who cares if Texas A&M gets in and upsets somebody? Like, well, well and upsets another Power 5 right? Like, which oh, nobody cares about. Congratulations, you beat an SEC team. You played three times in the regular season right. or something like that. Like, like, that's not nearly as much fun. So I think that would legitimately hurt it. And I hope... There are enough people in college sports to actually stand up and say, no, Greg Sankey. We're not expanding beyond 68 because your poor little Texas a I think they'll talk about in. it, though. He's pretty powerful. Probably. Absolutely. And also, no, Greg Sankey. We're not getting rid of auto bids because that's part of what makes this incredible. But this is where we are. And you're right. He's powerful enough that they'll talk about it. And... <sighs> <laughs> and then he gives these examples. Look at what UCLA did. Look, look at what Syracuse did. I mean, UCLA is as a powerful as you get in college basketball right. in a lot in a lot of years. So what are right. you talking about? Yeah, like he was the underdog UCLA. Under, yeah, underdog, underdog Syracuse. Underdog, yeah. underdog Syracuse. Yeah, those are his underdogs. He wants more of those great underdog stories of UCLA making a run only to get upset by Gonzaga. Like that's like, but that's what they want. They want the underdog stories to be them. They want the underdog story to be Texas A&M, a 14 seed, went on a magical run to the Final Four or something like that. That's what they want. The they way don't want he's it to like, be The way Peter's. he's, as Forty explains, the way he's uh, talking about expansion, you could get to 80 teams. Well, here's the thing. If you're going to expand, it needs to be 128. Everybody just plays one more game. You add one extra weekend onto the NCAA tournament. I am I am okay with this as a resident of Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> like, in all seriousness, if you're going to expand to 80... They may finish the 215 if this happens. <laughs> are you really concerned about the 81st team and the 128th team? No. no. Like, if you're going to expand, you just give everybody an extra game and you double it to 128. Like, that's that's what you would do. Not 80-something. Texas A&M could make it then. 